to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Miriam Aroni Krinsky, author of the book, Change from Within, Reimagining the 21st Century Prosecutor. Miriam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have the chance to be with you and to have this conversation. Now, first off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your own background as a prosecutor, and uh, what you do now? Sure. So I spent around a decade and a half as a prosecutor. It was in the 80s and 90s and with two large urban areas, both Los Angeles, which was also known as the Central District of California, as well as with a strike force in the Mid-Atlantic, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Virginia area. And it was during a period of time where we saw practices around escalating penalties, tough on crime philosophies, and really just um, this presumption that we could punish our way out of so many of societal problems that even as we were seeing increasing concerns around substance use and and substance use disorder, that this so-called war on drugs that was putting in place mandatory minimums and harsher and harsher penalties was somehow the auto response and in lieu of treatment or other approaches that removing people from the community at times for decades on end could improve their plight or the plight of their families or others. So that was kind of the era in which I prosecuted. I prosecuted both at at first and saw my own caseload. And then as a supervisor, started to see a much larger volume of cases and patterns that repeated themselves over and over again. Young people, inevitably young people of color, entering the justice system, um, many of them destined to spend much of their adult adult life behind bars, Um, intergenerational cycles where those who we were incarcerated also had children who, by virtue of missing parents, were finding themselves on a pathway of poverty and too often ended up themselves, first in the child welfare and then in the justice system. And unforgiving penalties that really had no ability to consider both the individual and what was right for that individual and to take a more expansive and nuanced look at what we were doing to communities. So I really felt by the end of that decade and a half that we just weren't using our resources, our limited resources in the criminal legal system wisely, that we were devastating individuals, we were devastating their families, and we were doing it in ways that was also damaging and devastating many communities and not making them any safer or healthier. So I left that work in early 2002 to run a legal services organization that represented young people, really feeling that those windows of opportunities were still open and were ones that I wanted to capture in trying to proactively work on behalf of young people at risk. And you were the founder and now the executive director of Fair and Just Prosecution. Is that right? That's right. So we formed Fair and Just Prosecution, or FJP, at the end of 2016, as we saw a new generation of individuals coming into office as elected prosecutors, um, individuals who were willing to think differently about what justice meant in their community and how they benefit and improve the plight of individuals and communities. 
and leaders who brought an incredibly different background to this job. And we really felt that there was benefit in forming community among them, giving them the chance to interact with each other and learn from each other as well as other experts um, and have the benefit of whatever assistance and resource and expertise we could provide as they were really trying to, you know, to bring about this process of change that we hadn't seen prior generations of elected prosecutors willing to embrace. And speaking of elections, just to ground my listeners, Miriam and I are speaking on November 15th. So there are still some ballots from the midterm election being counted. But uh, now that FJP has been through several election cycles, are you seeing any national or regional trends when it comes to prosecutors who have this different mindset? We absolutely are, and and in ways that are incredibly heartening, especially when one considers the extent to which there has been an effort by some to drive a fear narrative and to push back on these changes. Um, So what we're seeing in increasing numbers is that communities want something different. They don't want to return to the punitive approaches that I saw in the 80s and 90s when I was a prosecutor. They recognize the damage that we've done, and they recognize that we need to be smarter, that we need to look for ways to certainly address rampant gun ownership and gun violence, but we also need to look for ways to address a public health approach to violence and violence prevention, just as we need to be smarter about when and if the justice system engages, you know, whether we're going to continue to criminalize individuals who are suffering from mental health challenges or substance use issues or simply struggling, you know, with the everyday challenges and economic downturn we've seen these past few years over the course of this really unusual and and singularly defining pandemic um, that has ravaged so many communities, both individually and, and societally. So we're seeing voters go to the polls understanding all of that. Um, they are electing and re-electing in increasing number numbers, individuals who are willing to change how we did things in the past. Um, we're seeing reformers, individuals who have a view that the criminal legal system has gotten too large, that we've incarcerated too many and for too long a period of time, come into office on a very frank agenda, embracing the need to shift our paradigms. And that's happening in red states and in blue states. It's happening in urban areas and in small jurisdictions. It's happening happening in New York and California and every part of the nation in between. And you know, we saw that in increasing number from 2016 forward. And we saw that most recently in this past election that, you know, came to conclusion or is continuing to come to conclusion over the course of this month of November. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. But when we come back, we're going to dig into this book project. And, and it really is a, a full project. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. 
Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Lee Rawls here with Miriam Krinsky. And Miriam, now I want to turn to talk about the book project, Change from Within, Reimagining the 21st Century Prosecutor. And the reason I said that this isn't just a book, it's it's more of a book project, is rather than this being, say, um, a nonfiction book just about, you know, fair and just prosecution or the projects that you've been involved with, this is actually interviews with 13 different prosecutors of all demographics, geographically, you know, spread out through the country. And I have to imagine it took a lot of work. So I just want to start at the beginning. How did it begin for you? How did you get this idea and how did you kick it off? Sure. Um, and and it really was, you know, both, um, as you said, quite a project, but also a labor of love. And um, little did I imagine at the beginning of this how long it would take to, to pull it together and what went into putting something like this out there into the world. But it also became increasingly important over the couple of years that we've been working on it um, to be able to tell these stories and, and to put these messages out into the world that underscore how different these leaders are and how important elected prosecutors are in really being able to put an imprint on the kind of community and the kind of environment our community wants to live in. So in terms of the impetus, I I give a lot of credit to one of our funders, the Art for Justice Project, and some incredible individuals involved with that, including the philanthropist um, Agnes Gund, who supported that work. Um, We have been a grantee of that project, and through that project, um, it's enabled those who are advocates for change and in the legal world doing that work or the advocacy world doing that work to interface and intersect with artists who believe that we can bring about change through advocacy or through leadership, but we can also bring about change by being able to impact hearts and minds. And I became a big believer through the Art for Justice Project in the importance of both of those. And they were the ones who put us in contact at first with the Mural Arts Project, with whom we did a wonderful initiative in the Philadelphia DA's office, putting an artist in residence in that office. And they also put us in touch with the New Press, who are the publishers of the book. And the leader at the New Press, the wonderful head of that organization, um, started talking to me about the value of trying to capture this moment, which we believe is very much not just a moment, but also a movement, and also to try to capture the inspiring stories and the essence of these leaders in a book. And I thought it was a terrific idea, you know, that led to trying to capture these oral histories in long 
interviews that we've also put out in many videos on our website in a Meet the Movement page. But trying to capture those accounts, those personal journeys to this job and why the job is so important and also why it's so difficult and to intersperse and intermingle with it the incredible artwork and the perspective it brings of formerly incarcerated artists who have been proximate to the damage done by this system. So, you know, that's kind of the essence of where the project came from and what it's been trying to do. So for any of my listeners who are wondering how this comes together in its physical form, uh, just as a reader, you know, each chapter, the frontispiece of each chapter has a portrait of the prosecutor who's about to share their story. And the portraits, they're done in all different styles um, of art by these artists who were formerly incarcerated. So you know, it's this beautiful portrait. And then as you read the person's story, it's told in first person. And they, you know, each chapter, they tend to walk you through both what their childhood was, often what encounters they had with the justice system at a very young age, and some of them are pretty tragic, uh, and what brought them to the law, what brought them to prosecution, and how they form their philosophy and how they put it into practice while they're in office. So, you know, 13 different chapters. That may make it sound a little standard, but everyone's story is so different. It's it's really not. Every new chapter, you're reading a whole new life with, um, you know, very different details. And I just, you know, the book said that you started this in 2020 and it went through 2021. There are obviously difficulties when you're working on such a personal project for so long. Uh, for example, the very first prosecutor mentioned, uh, Chesa, is it Chesa Boudin? Boudin. Chesa Boudin. The very first chapter, Chesa Boudin, after the book went to press, lost a recall election. Uh, so things are just always in motion. You are dealing with, you know, you're trying to do this project during the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And, you know, certainly the dynamic is an ever-changing one. So there were prosecutors who, over the course of the project, like Chesa, um, who, you know, were victims of unique consequences that led to um, those who put tremendous amounts of money into attacking this new vision of change and trying to go back to the way things used to be. And so, you know, it's it's always a precarious place to be, to be in elected office, to be a change agent, and to be trying to take on a status quo that has many who financially are invested in not seeing things reform. Um, that is not easy. And so inevitably, you know, there are some who either have moved on to other opportunities, such as Rachel Rollins, who was the DA um, in Massachusetts, in Boston, and is now the U.S. attorney for the state of Massachusetts. Um, and, and there are folks like Chesa who are no longer in the office they were in at the time we worked on the book. So, you know, we, we knew that those changes would happen, but we also felt it was just so important to be able to capture sort of the early years of this movement to be able to give a face to individuals who are so often vilified by those who are the naysayers or who are pushing back on change. 
to tell their stories so people could understand, you know, from the early years forward, how did they find their way into these jobs? Why on earth did they decide to take on this immense challenge? What does it mean to them, you know, in their heart, in in the essence of who they are to be doing these jobs? How and why do they make use of the unbelievably powerful clout that DAs have? And, and why do communities need to know and understand these roles? Because these are positions that are gatekeepers on the criminal legal system and that with the stroke of a pen can bring about tremendous changes from their first day in office. Um, and we also knew that there would be some gaps at the time we started on the project and identified the 13 to focus on. George Gascon, the DA in my own community in Los Angeles, was not yet in that position. So he's not included in the book because he wasn't in office at that time, even though he now occupies the leadership role in the largest DA's office in the country. So the picture is changing, but certain themes that are in the book, you know, I think are really a constant. And along with those themes and and the things that I already identified. The other constant is just how different these leaders are. They bring unusual diversity, both of background, of race, and of prior professional perspective and and history to the jobs they hold. Many of them never spent a day as a prosecutor, let alone as DA, before they were elected. Many of them had a career of work as Innocence Project lawyers, like Parissa Degani Tafti, or criminal defense lawyers, you know, like Chesa or Larry Krasner, and really brought a fundamentally different way of thinking about the job. And many of them in this book broke a glass ceiling through their election. You know, we know that up until a few years ago, only 1% of elected prosecutors were women of color. Yet, you know, the majority of people around the first table we assembled of elected prosecutors in early 2017 in Chicago, the majority of them were women. The majority of them were elected prosecutors of color. So this is a new group of leaders in how they think, in who they are, and in the diversity that they bring to this job. And let's talk more about that and also, you know, have you respond to, you know, what naysayers may may say. Obviously, there are people who um, would double down on the tough and crime. But in addition, there are people who, you know, I'm reminded of the Otter Lord quote, uh, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And, you know, Otter Lord definitely believed that in the in the 70s. And I think there are people now who think that it is not worth becoming engaged in prosecution or that they're you know, the idea of prosecution should should be opposed. So there are definitely, um, you know, at least two angles, but many more that people can come at and really question um, why it's important in your view to, um, you know, be involved in, in prosecution. Yeah, I, I think you're so right. And, and you know, that that is a great quote and a great, you know, question. And, and sometimes we hear sort of the, the other version of that, is, which is when we're talking to law students who, you know, will often ask us, I am passionate about changing this system, but why on earth would I want to become a prosecutor and, and not, 
you know, fight for change as a public defender and, and try to, you know, very much dismantle, as you said, that house that is such a failed and flawed house. And I, you know, I think too how some of the elected prosecutors we work with answer that, having spent a career on the other side of the courtroom. And, and what many of them focus on is, you know, if you really want to dismantle that system, what better way, you know, than to try to, as we put it in the book, change it from within or blow up some of the boxes from within? You know, prosecutors have the ability, as many of them have done, to say, you know, we will no longer put kids into the adult system. We will no longer seek the death penalty. We will dramatically reduce who comes through the front door of this system and no longer criminalize substance use or mental health challenges or so much else that we bring into the system to try to treat it as opposed to knowing that a prison cell or a jail cell should not be a mental health institution. It should not be where we bring people to try to help them and alleviate the problems that bring them into contact with the criminal legal system. So, you know, I think what I would say to folks is, you know, we need all of it. We need pressure points from the outside. We need those who are trying very hard to dismantle this system. We also need those who are trying to improve it from within because, you know, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good that, you know, we have to recognize this is a system that has done a lot of damage for generations. And we first need to stop doing damage. And prosecutors have the ability to put up that stop sign, to halt practices that have really thrown away lives, you know, every single day, every single month, every single year in ways that aren't wise and and that just are not improving the conditions in our community. I mean, for us to continue to sit here as a country with only four or five percent of the world's population but with 20% of the incarcerated population and 40% of the world's population serving life without parole sentences, and until recently, one of very few countries in the world that still had a juvenile death penalty, and to this day, one of the only Western countries that has a death penalty at all, that's inexcusable. It's not something that we should be willing to accept. And elected prosecutors really have the ability to start to end those things, even if they're not able to dismantle it all. And certainly in the 13 chapters, uh, the prosecutors you talked to spoke to how they specifically uh, made changes to their office. But I think that for many people who aren't directly involved in the criminal justice system, it may not be super clear to them you know, what powers a prosecutor may have that allow them to um, make the, you know, compassionate decision or fight against and an what they consider, you know, an injustice. And I thought maybe it would be helpful if we discussed, uh, for example, you know, Roe v. Wade was just overturned. And we're seeing in the news media that in a lot of areas where states may have on the books very old laws criminalizing abortion, uh, there have been district attorneys who, or you know, local prosecutors who have said that they are not interested in bringing charges related to breaking that law. For example, could you talk a little bit about, you know, just as an example, what prosecutors can do when it comes to protecting rights now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned? 
Absolutely. And and that's such a great example of the gatekeeping power that prosecutors have. I mean, they they decide in the first instance whether a case is going to come into the criminal legal system, whether charges should be filed, um, whether those charges should be filed as death-eligible cases, as mandatory minimum cases, whether young people should be charged as adults or kept in the juvenile system. And by virtue of their control over the plea bargain to offer, which is the fast majority of cases, because so few cases go to trial, they're often the ones that decide if a case does come through the front door, how it's going to be resolved. They advocate for what sentence should be imposed. And then after the fact, they also have the ability to remediate and correct past injustices by arguing if there are cases that lack integrity for a second look, a second look at an unjust conviction, a second look at an unjust sentence. So that's kind of the general framework within this issue, Lee, that you raised has cropped up. We are seeing now, sadly, tragically, an effort to bring into the criminal legal system what used to be protected rights, the right to make decisions about your own body, the right to reproductive choice, um, even in some instances, as we've seen crop up, you know, recently in Texas, the right to decide whether transgender care is needed for your your loved one, for your child. It is tragic to see efforts, and most recently that in the Dobbs case in the Supreme Court, take those previously well settled, and in the case of of abortion, five-decade-old recognized right, and now not simply erode it, but create a runway in which some states are trying to use that um, as a decision that could put people into the crosshairs of the criminal justice system, where a miscarriage potentially becomes a crime scene or an abortion becomes a crime scene. So that is really tragic, and I think something that should disturb us all. And so many of the prosecutors that we work with are using that incredibly powerful tool of prosecutorial discretion to come together and decide that it is not a wise use of their limited resources in the criminal justice system or a wise use of their exercise of discretion to criminalize these kinds of cases. And we've brought dozens of them together in saying that they simply don't believe that their limited resources should be used in that way, that they are not inclined, absent perhaps a highly unusual kind of case where there's been an intentional effort to harm the woman or or, engage in other aberrational behavior, but absent some highly unusual case, that they are not willing to criminalize these sorts of decisions or individuals who assist in these kinds of 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 efforts and you know and they're also bringing their voices together in trying to challenge efforts to enforce trigger laws laws that otherwise will automatically come into effect in some states that would ban abortions based on the erosion of Roe versus Wade as we've seen in the Dobbs case recently so you know those are important places for prosecutors not just to use their discretion, but also to use their bully pulpit as leaders in the criminal justice system to try to advocate for a starting point state by state and a recognition of state constitutional rights, even if our federal constitution based on the Supreme Court's decision is no longer to acknowledge that as a protected right. 
Well, that is a great overview or wide look. Um, but one of the great things about Change From Within, reimagining the 21st century prosecutor is, is that you're getting into some very personal stories with all 13 of these prosecutors. And I, I have to ask, as you were interviewing them for the book, what were some of your favorite anecdotes? Oh, wow. That, that's like trying to choose a favorite child um, because they were all <laughs> so amazing. One of mine was the uh, member of the biker gang. <laughs> yes. So certainly that's one of them. I mean, um, Mark Gonzalez from Corpus Christi, Texas, again, just such an unlikely, you know, uh, person to be holding that job. And, and you almost could have, you know, entitled or subtitled that book, you know, the unlikely DAs. Um, you know, Mark is someone who was a lifelong criminal defense lawyer, has not guilty, tattooed on his chest, um, is a member of a motorcycle group that has been deemed um, by local authorities um, to put him on the gang list. And so, you know, here is this unusual person holding the job of DA. And um, so Mark has been stopped on occasion when people run his license and see that he is, quote unquote, in a gang on the gang database. Um, We had an experience with Mark where we were coming back from a trip on the other side of the border to see some of the deplorable conditions And Mark was stopped trying to get back into the country. And, you know, we sort of out of the corner of our eyes saw Mark taken to an interrogation room and, you know, being searched and patted down. And, you know, Mark later, after a bit, came out and said that, you know, what got him out of there was saying to them, hey, by the way, I'm the DA. And they looked at him and said, yeah, right. And then they looked him up (laughs) and they looked on the computer and they looked at him. They saw it was one and the same person. You know, I think that account um, is one that, you know, because we were there in person and saw it unfold, um, it just exemplifies how different they are. I think Chase Boudin's story of someone who grew up um, coming to know his parents, you know, as a toddler and a youngster by having, you know, to go inside prison walls to visit his parents who had been arrested when he was you know, barely able to walk for, you know, mistakes admittedly that they had made, but, you know, their lives were completely thrown away as a result. And and only recently were his parents able to, you know, to find their way back to the community um, and, and live out, you know, at least in one of his parents' situations, their last, you know, few years of life. Um, I think the stories of many of them who personally experienced injustices of the system, either lost a loved one to violence or to substance use disorder in the case of Dan Satterberg, the first one in the case of Eric Gonzalez, um, or who saw innocent individuals in the web of the justice system um, facing tremendous injustices, as Parissa Degani Tafti saw up close. You know, I also get moved by stories of what it means to be a Black woman holding this job. Satana Deberry and Kim Fox talk very passionately about that. And, um, and having had, you know, loved ones and members of their close family and community in the justice system and, you know, what it means to be holding a job where part of the job, you know, does involve throwing, you know, young people, often young people of color, you know, behind bars, but how you can do that job with heart and really um, explain it 
and and be able to live it out within your community. I mean, all of those are stories that were so deeply moving and that we feel the book has been able to capture. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. You mentioned that there are also video clips available. So if someone's interested in picking up Change From Within, reimagining the 21st century prosecutor and seeing the art or uh, watching, watching the videos, is there a place you would direct them? I would direct them to our Fair and Just Prosecution website, um, which is easy to find. And we have a page on that website on the book, Change From Within, that will allow listeners to find it and find read more about it and be able to order it. And there's also a part of our website that's called Meet the Movement, where these short video clips from the interviews are available and really give you a sense of these unbelievable leaders and, and hopefully through all of that, we're going to inspire the next generation for, of change agents. Uh, in many ways, part of this book and part of our bringing it to law schools as well around the country is to hope that we can reach those who are trying to decide what to do with their legal degree and their career and to make them realize that you know, one person in these jobs, in these offices, can have a huge impact on the life of others and that the jobs may not be easy, but we need people who are going to really um, try to challenge themselves to do it differently and feel the pain, you know, the pain of their communities, the pain of those who have been victimized and are survivors of crime, as well as the pain of those that get caught in the criminal legal system and shouldn't forever be defined by the biggest mistake they've made or perhaps the worst day that they've had. They deserve an opportunity for second chances and for us to be smarter about how we attend to what they've done, how we hold them accountable, and how we also improve the plight of our community overall. Well, again, thank you, Miriam, for coming on to talk to us about your book. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. If there's a book you'd like me to consider having as a future episode, you can always reach me at books at abajournal.com. 